beginning in verse number 40. And then we'll, some of you are probably familiar with this passage as soon as we'll look at it, but we'll consider the, the whole story that it's, we find uh, this being contained in. Verse number 40, it says, And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. By the way, this is Simon the Pharisee, not Simon Peter. And he, Simon, saith, Master, say on. Jesus says, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he, that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Jesus gives this short parable, this short story, a sketch of a creditor, a man who had two men that owed him money. One 50 pence, the other 500 pence. If you know from other passages of scripture, you find that this this penny or this plural for penny, the pence, was in some days um, or some, some cases a day's wage, one penny. I'd like to work all day and make a penny. A penny obviously went further in, in New Testament times than our penny goes today. So here, 500 pence would have been a, a, a significant sum. 50 would have been a generous sum, but comparatively speaking, it was much less. These two men owed the man. The man forgave them because neither one had anything to pay. Jesus asked them and says, which one would love him the most? And in Simon's eyes, he says, well, it seems like the one who had been forgiven the most. We're going to consider the, what was happening and would happen after this event and think on the subject, motivated by love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the scripture that gives us the accounts of Christ and such a pattern how we might live our lives. May you bless our hearts tonight, encourage us, help us to understand the truth that we might grow thereby. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're going to back up and just quickly review, make some application based upon the beginning of this chapter number seven in Luke. There's a lot going on. It's a busy chapter. There's no way to completely know how uh, long the chapter, as far as a timeline, a lot is taking place. It appears to be at least a couple days, many hours at the very least. It begins with um, this one centurion who, uh, his daughter is sick, and Jesus, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, well, let's go see her. And he says, listen, I, I have servants, and when I tell them to go do something, they do it. Jesus just say she'll be healed, and I trust you that she'll be healed. And Jesus said, what, a, what an amount of faith, and in that very hour, his daughter was healed. He left that scene, entered into another city, and there was that boy who had, been, uh, who had died. The, the, the funeral procession was taking place. Jesus walks up to the, uh, called a beer or a uh, casket there, touches the young boy, and raises him from the dead. He then finds his way to uh, this area uh, goes through Capernaum at one point, and he begins to heal and, and perform miracles, cast out devils, do all of these uh, supernatural works. In that very hour, that, at, at that time, John the Baptist is in prison, and he is discouraged. 
You remember how he's questioning if this Jesus who he had baptized and who had proclaimed, he had proclaimed to be the Son of God. He begins to wonder if this is really him. He sends his disciples, uh, John's own disciples from that prison cell, and asks them to go find this man Jesus and just confirm that he truly is the Son of God. Upon arrival, he, Jesus is there performing miracles, and he says to the disciples of John, go back and tell John how the blind eyes are seeing and the lame are, are, are walking and the, the, the gospel is bring, being preached to the poor. And he says, tell him what's happening and confirm, yes, indeed, I am the Son of God. As, he, as they leave, Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist and give much credit to his preaching, his his character, and then he points out in verse number 30, he says, he mentions this, and the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. He, he discredits the Pharisees for their rejection of John. Well, I think that has something to do with our story as we get into verse number 36, because it says, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Now, this man, we'll see in just a moment, his name is Simon, Simon the Pharisee. Simon desires Jesus would come to his house and be his guest uh, and have a meal with him. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but I, I've, for days now, and about a week or so, I've been considering this passage, and I, I wonder, what was the motivation behind Simon? There were some Pharisees, like Nicodemus, who I believe trusted Christ and got saved. There are some that had a desire to know more, and there was something about the words of Christ that they just couldn't shake, and they, they wanted the truth. But I don't think this, this Simon had that same desire. In fact, I think this was a mo his, his uh, point or his reason was motivated by pride. Maybe to bring Jesus into his house just to say he uh, had Jesus at his table. Maybe it was an opportunity to try to question him, as the Pharisees often did. You, you remember that these Pharisees, they spent basically their lives trying to discredit and disprove Christ. We'll see in a moment uh, why, really why I, I come to that conclusion. But it says that he, has, he invites him to be his guest, and he went in, the end of verse 36, into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. That would be to eat, to enjoy a meal. Now, we don't know exactly what the scene was like. Many times they would either sit down or almost lounge down, lay down on the floor. Some of you would like that. You get to lay down even when you eat. And there they are in Simon's house, maybe laying down on a type of couch or, or possibly sitting at some type of table. We don't know what the discussion was like. We don't know where the conversation was going, who was leading it, the questions that were being asked. But we find in verse 37 that immediately the night has changed. Someone enters the room and there's no question as to all the eyes and all the attention where the focus went. In verse number 37 it says, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at, his feet, uh, stood at his feet and behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with tears and, and to wipe them with the hairs of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now, if you know these Bible days, typically, when you went into a person's house, they would have some type of a servant or a, a maid there who would be the foot washer. I would suppose that was the, 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 the lowest of the low servant. Um, I don't know about you, but I would hope to, you know, move up past that point of, of servitude. Now, I don't think it was as difficult as most of us consider today. No one was taking off their gym shoes and their socks when they came into the house. Instead, it was typically, I would say, m many of the people either had bare feet or a sandal-type shoe on where it wasn't what you might consider to be a stinky foot. But they were to wash off the dust before entering the house. So you'd come in and be seated, and the servant would take, as Jesus portrayed in, in John's gospel, he would, they would take some type of basin, a, 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 some type of bowl of water and a towel, and your feet would be quickly washed, and then you would enter into the house. Well, that wasn't the case at Simon's house. We don't know exactly why. But this woman comes in, and she gets down behind Jesus, and she begins to weep. And her tears begin to drip upon his feet. and She begins to wipe his feet with her own hair. And she had this, what's called an alabaster box. It was most likely a type of, like a sealed container that had to be broken open. And this perfume was, was or this oil, this perfume type oil was poured out on his feet. And he, she wipes the feet of Jesus with the hairs of her head and anoints them with this oil. Can you imagine if you were in the house and you watched this spectacle take place? Now, it would be one thing if it was just a stranger or maybe it was someone you knew well, but this wasn't someone they knew well based upon her friendship, but it was based upon her poor character. She was known as a sinful woman. Now, it doesn't specifically say what that is, but we can assume, as, as many times in the Bible this is stated, that she was an adulterous woman. She was a woman who had very low character. No doubt she had had very low self-esteem. No doubt she was, she was covered in just the filth of evil and sin. And she was looked down upon in society. She had been used and mistreated. But something in her life had happened. Something had changed her. See, I don't believe, as you study this, this passage, you could come to the conclusion that this was the first time she had uh, been introduced to Christ. But, but I think that she had been introduced to Christ before this. Because in one place it says she, Jesus specifically says, we read it a moment ago, or I guess we haven't read it yet, but it, he'll say, she loved much. As if to say, she already has a love for me. This woman who Simon was looking down because she was known for her sin had a great and sincere love for God. Something had changed in her life. We don't know what it was, or when it was rather, or the occasion of when it occurred. But maybe it was as she had watched him heal those poor and, and lame people. Those who the world had cast aside. The lepers who had this disease that caused them to be the exiles of the community. Yet Jesus showed compassion to them. Maybe it was as he, as he had mentioned to the disciples of John that the gospel is being preached to the poor. Maybe she was in the crowd as the gospel was preached to sinners like her. We don't know when it was, but I suppose that shortly before this, she had heard the good news that Christ indeed was the Messiah, that her sins could be forgiven, 
that though she were stained with sin, the blood of Christ could cleanse her. And she received that redemption. But she had never had an opportunity to give him the kind of thanks that she desired. I try to, when I read stories like this, I try to put myself, not in her shoes, but a, a view from her. I don't wear women's shoes, so it wouldn't work out. But I, I try to put myself in, in her position. What was, what was taking place in the moments leading up to this? Imagine with me this woman who had been selling her body. She had been changed, though. She's been redeemed. I don't know about you, but I can't help but imagine she probably doesn't have a consistent income at this point. She, she, the society she was living in, she wasn't accepted for her sin. She was looked down upon. She, had been, she was rejected. She was known as the harlot of the city. No one was going to hire her. No one was going to receive her. But she wants to do something for her Savior. We don't know where she had, this, had gotten this, this box of ointment, this alabaster box of ointment, this oil. Now, in these days, ointment was something very special. There was no uh, store you could just run down to and buy a, a case of perfume or a case of lotion. She, she had acquired this. We don't know where, whether she had purchased it or she had received it from someone. But possibly this was the most valuable thing that she owned. And it could have been very well her only possession. And she took that casement of, of oil, this perfume, and she, I can imagine her just kind of creeping into the room, knowing that she wasn't invited, maybe even being uh, seemingly rejected from the, the look on the faces of those people. She doesn't even have the, the, the ability in her mind to confront Christ to his face. She just kind of sneaks in behind him and, and finds a place at his feet and begins to weep because she knew that he had been her redeemer. He was the only one that had ever accepted her. He was the only one that received her and offered her something with nothing in return. She begins to weep and to wipe his feet with the hair of her head. She begins to anoint his feet with this oil. And this Pharisee who had invited Jesus in, look at what, it, what happens in verse number 39. It says, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it. So this Pharisee, Simon, sees it. He's probably thinking, what a picture of humility. What a picture of forgiveness. What a beautiful scene as the Lord is, be, is being worshipped and adored by this woman. No, on the contrary. He spake within himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, see, at this point, Simon doesn't even consider Jesus to be a prophet, no less the son of God. This is where I, I really question his sincerity and integrity in bringing Jesus into his house. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. He said, if this man, Jesus, really was a prophet, he would have never let that woman touch him because she's a sinner. See, these Pharisees gave us the name Pharisee as being a hypocrite. It, it was a title of superiority in their days. It's, it's, a, it's an insult today. 
Because on the outside they were clean and they, were, they, they appeared to be righteous. But in their heart they were full of pride and arrogancy and selfishness. And he looks at this woman and, and you can imagine maybe the look on his face as he thinks, why is this woman even in our presence? Why is Jesus allowing this, this, this scene to take place? And as the disciples struggled to figure out, the Pharisees struggled to, to figure out, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Verse 40 says, And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And I can imagine his expression changes very quickly, dramatically. A smile comes across his face, and, and he clears his throat and says, uh, <clears throat> Master, say on. I'm ready. What do you got to say to me? As if maybe he's, he's, he's hoping for some type of praise. And then he gives us this story that we just read a moment ago. There's, a, there's a, a man who has two debtors. One owes 500 pence, 150. We don't know why they owed the money, but they have nothing to pay. They have nothing to offer this creditor. Nothing. But this man says, I'm going to forgive both of you. Not because you deserve it, not because you have something to offer, but out of the generosity of my heart, I'm going to forgive you. Wipe the slate clean, you owe me nothing. Jesus says, who's going to love that man more? The man who owed 500 or 50. And Simon answers correctly and says, I suppose the one who owed 500. It just seems right and logical that this man would love the creditor more because he had been forgiven more. Verse 44 says, and he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. It's funny, he turns to the woman. The woman was behind him. Jesus turns around looking at the woman, but speaking to Simon. And says, seeth, this seeth thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. He said, Simon, all the things that you would have been expected to do just as a, a, you know, to offer me into your house as a guest, you did none of those things. Yet she's done all of them. Verse, 45, uh, verse 46 says, uh, for 47, let's try that one. It says, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. See, I, I think he's saying this as in the past. Now, again, I, I can't tell you I know exactly what everyone's thinking and, and specifically what all these verses are, are bringing us to, but, but as I've studied this and pondered it and thought on it, I think this woman had already received forgiveness. But maybe as she's continued to be the reject of society and struggling with the, the past that lingers in her mind and the, the, the heartache within, she comes back to Jesus almost as to say, I'm not sure if I've got everything I need. And Jesus very clearly says her sins are forgiven. What a beautiful story of redemption that we see here that applies specifically to us. If you've been born again, your sins are forgiven. So many religions, so many ideas in our world today state that you've got to keep earning or, or, or living up to a certain standard to claim or keep your salvation, but 
the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches very specifically, that when we come to Christ, our sins are forgiven. He says to this woman, he says to Simon, but about this woman, her sins are forgiven. She's clean. You think of her as a sinner, but I see her as a redeemed child. Her sins are forgiven. And look what else he says. I think there's confusion about this verse at times, but the next phrase it says, for she loved much. It doesn't say that she loves much because she was forgiven more than you, but because or, or therefore she loved much because her sins are forgiven. It wasn't the fact that she received more forgiveness than someone else. Because just like she could receive all forgiveness, Simon could receive all forgiveness. But we see a man over here who has received no forgiveness. He hasn't even received the 50 pence worth. She's received, yes, indeed, the 500 pence, but he hasn't even received the 50 pence. He hasn't received an ounce of forgiveness. And unforgiveness in his heart left him with a bitterness and an anger and a resentment toward those who were sinners. He said, therefore, for she loved much, because she loved much, because of her love, because of what, what had happened, because of the forgiveness, she now loves. I think it goes hand in hand. It kind of goes two ways. But she didn't love in order to receive forgiveness, but because she's forgiven, it increased her love. Because she, she sees the extent of her forgiveness. See, when she came into Jesus, she knew that something had changed in her life. She entered into to, to the presence of Christ saying, I'd been rejected by the world. I'd been rejected by my so-called friends. I'd been rejected by society. But now I've been received by you. And her love was now motivating her to act. Her, her love was motivating her to worship. He continues and says in verse number 47, For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. That was Simon. He had received little forgiveness. Not because he had little sins. He had just as much sin as she had. She, he was just as much an unbeliever as she was before Christ. He was, ju he was just as much on the road to hell and the road to rejection and the road to damnation as she was. But she now has received forgiveness and he's received nothing. Not because he couldn't receive it, because he chose not to receive it. And then he ends verse number 47 and says, The same loveth little. You don't have a love for me because you've never received my forgiveness. And he doesn't say this out loud, but we could easily say the reason he hadn't received his forgiveness because he'd never seen his sin for what it was. You remember there was another passage where Jesus is talking about uh, this blind man. Remember the blind man who came and um, Jesus gave him sight and the Pharisees were all in a ruckus about it. And at the end of it, he said, because of your, your sin, your blindness remains. You, you, you're still blind. And some of the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, are, are we blind also? What a question. Are we blind also? I think there was something within them that said they wanted to change. Are we blind also? And he says, because you are unwilling to see your sin, 
You think you're righteous, so yes, your blindness continues. Your spiritual blindness is there because you've refused to view your sin as it is. Let's just finish this chapter. It says in verse number 48, um, and he saith unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. He reminds her, reminds the people, it wasn't her actions that, that brought her salvation, it was her faith. It was her faith that brought her to Christ. It was her faith that caused her to creep into the room. It was her faith that caused her to worship him as her savior. It was her faith that had saved her. But it was her love now that motivated her to perform these works. It was her love that motivated her to live right. It was her love that now motivated her to change her ways. For many of us, we can think back on a time where God began to convict our heart over our sin. And many of you could go back to a time and a place and say, here's where I was. That maybe the first time or at least the final time when I trusted Christ. And, and the, the time when God began to convict me over sin. Not the final time you trusted Christ, but the final time he convicted you about your salvation. Some of you, it took a while. He began to stir your heart. Maybe you were in a preaching service and you heard the gospel presented. You, you heard the punishment for sin and you, you heard the story of redemption. And there was something within you that said, that's what I need. There was something within you that said, I'm tired of the way I'm living. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of my selfishness. I'm tired of my way and I need this. But you said, maybe later, maybe, maybe another day. I don't know about this woman, but maybe she had heard the story prior to this, and she rejected it. And waking up after another day of living in sin, and the emptiness is still there, and the heartache is still there, she said, I need something different. We don't know how many times she had heard Christ, but there was a time where finally, after the conviction of the Spirit pressed her soul, she surrendered to Him and accepted Him as her Savior. And you can remember the time when finally... You bowed your will to God and said, God, I, I accept you as my Savior. And for many of you, maybe all of you, you experienced more than salvation. You, you experienced a love that seemed like to just blossom. There was a love for Christ that came immediately. You may not be able to describe it. You may have not known whence it came or why it was there, but it was there. All of a sudden, you wanted to serve. All of a sudden, you wanted to be a part of the ministry. You wanted to change your ways. You wanted to live differently and walk differently and talk differently and dress differently. I know some of your testimonies, and you have a testimony where you got saved and immediately had to start changing things. You had to change the crowd you were with. You had to change the entertainment you were involved in. You had to change the music you listened to because you knew right away this is not jiving with the spiritual walk that I want to be a part of. And you may not have known it at the time, but when Christ entered into your life, he brought a love that can't really be described. He brought a love that abides in him, and now he's abiding in you with it. Some of you also can look back on a life where that love seemed to just kind of fade. It began to wax cold, as Jesus said it. 
He said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It's still there, but it's died down. It's like a fire that the, the embers need to be stirred up and, and kindling needs to be replaced on the, on the fire and the, and the flames need to be uh, invited to this, this fire pit once again. Maybe you're here tonight and you find yourself in a place where that love that you used to have isn't really there anymore. Maybe you find your place like Simon did as he sat across the table and you're very quick to judge, you're very quick to point out when someone makes a mistake or the choir doesn't sing the note just right or the chairs are crooked. Where you used to come into church and worship God and you used to have a love for your Bible and you used to enjoy and, and get something out of the preaching. Now you're busy looking at your watch wondering when it's going to be over. Here this woman, we see the devotion of someone who had been born again. And though you never spent time truly at Jesus' feet weeping, you remember a time where there were tears in your eyes where you wept over sin. You wept at the, the, the great joy of being forgiven. You, 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 were, you were sincerely changed by the thought that my sins are forgiven and heaven's my home and Christ is my, um, my I'm joint heirs with Christ, God's my father. And it meant something to you and, and, and there was passion and there was a focus and there was a love. And like anything that's not maintained, it's begin to kind of just die down. You know, sometimes as Sunday school teachers or preachers or parents, there's often a, a struggle with trying to motivate people to do what you believe is right. We take the Bible as our final authority, and we read the Bible and we see things that a believer ought to be doing and how the home ought to be uh, working together and how marriages ought to be and and how the church ought to be growing and, and, and thriving and all these things. We look at the word of God as our final authority. And then we look at sometimes at people and we think, yeah, you know, get your act together. You don't even know what to say sometimes. If you don't believe me, come spend some time with teenagers. Most of them have it all together. But there's always one or two, right? There's always one or two that you can't figure out why they can't get their act together. No, there's times where you... You, you passionately try to encourage and, and, and motivate and you preach the word of God and you teach it. And there's times where, not for all of them, but sometimes you see people and, and you think, are you alive? You know, are you getting any of this? Is this, is, this, is this making any kind of impression on you? Some of you parents know that when you're, I was talking to a man at work today or yesterday and uh, he said, uh, he said, sometimes I talk to my daughter, and she just looks at me like, what are you talking about? I said, I've never, I've never experienced that. Never. Never talked to a kid, and they, they had that look. Never even, never, I've talked to a lot of adults that have that look. No. There's times where you look at people, and you try to encourage them, and strengthen them, and motivate them, and it just seems like it's, you're either a real bad motivator, or they're not listening. You know the greatest motivator? Is it me? Is it my words? isn't the choir as they sing, isn't the pastor. The greatest motivator is love. See, if we could get people to love God again, we could get people to serve God again. If you could get teenagers and children to love their parents, the, 
the, the obedience and respect and honoring wouldn't be that big of a problem. If you could get people to love America, you wouldn't have to worry about the, the elections. If you could get people to love the church, you wouldn't have to beg people to serve. If you can get people's love kindled and, and, and refreshed, just stand back and watch them. Because nothing can stand in the way of genuine love. You remember Peter, toward the end of uh, Christ's ministry, Jesus came to him and asked him three different times, Peter, lovest thou me? And by the end of it, Peter was frustrated and he said, Jesus, you know I love you. You know my, my heart yearns for you and I'm passionate about you. Why did he say that? I think because he was getting ready to sin. He was getting ready to leave Peter as the leader of the church at that time. And without a devoted love, Peter was going to fall again. But he knew that if Peter could establish his love for God, nothing would be able to stand in his way. And by the way, I believe his love was established and nothing did stand in his way. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was finally executed for Christ. Not because he had been motivated by a speech, not because he had made some kind of commitment, but there was a genuine love for Christ that caused him to go through the flames of, of affliction and persecution. Where's your love tonight? Is it love like the Pharisee had? See, the Pharisee from a distance looked like the leader in the, in the, in the community. He had the right clothes, he had the right look, he had the right speech. He carried the right Bible. He went to the synagogue every Sunday. But there was no real passion within him. Here, this woman who appeared to be still a sinner. They still saw her and recognized her with the scars of sin upon her. But she had more passion for Christ than any of those Pharisees had. Because there was a, a genuine love that came from within for him. You say, how can I rekindle this love? How can I allow the love that's within me to motivate me for service and for faithfulness? Let me give you just three thoughts and we'll be done tonight. First of all, find forgiveness. Now, you don't have to look very hard. It's more of choosing forgiveness. But if you don't find forgiveness, you're not going to be able to allow love to grow within you. Because love can't grow when it's trapped in with unforgiveness. See, the man, Simon, had no love because he had no forgiveness. He hadn't received this forgiveness. By the way, he couldn't forgive this woman either. And his unforgiving heart had no room for passion for Christ. It had no room for love. We've got to receive God's forgiveness, first of all. And if you haven't received that tonight... God desires to give it to you. I don't know that there's anything God wants to give you more than the forgiveness of sin. That's why his son died. That's why Jesus gave his, shed his blood to forgive you, to redeem you. You say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. He, he wants to continue to forgive you. As we make mistakes, as we struggle with sin, as we follow our own ways and, and, and find ourselves living in pride and selfishness and and lust, and all these other things that would cause us to err from God's word and God's way. God wants to give us forgiveness for those two. By the way, sometimes we need to receive forgiveness from others. I think sometimes as, as human beings we struggle with this. 
I think this woman might have still been struggling with this as she crept in thinking, all these people know me as a sinner. All these people know what I've done. They know where I've been. They, they, they've known the things that I've said and the, the, the actions that I've been involved in. But she needed to receive forgiveness from others. And then sometimes we need to forgive ourselves. You know, if God's willing to forgive us, why would we not be willing to forgive ourselves? There are people that hold on to their past and hold on to their sin. They claim to receive God's forgiveness, but they continue to beat themselves up over their their past mistakes. If we're going to find the genuine love for God, we're going to have to find forgiveness. Secondly, we need to forsake this hypocrisy. This hypocrisy that is all external, that's proud, that's selfish, that's exactly what this man Simon had. It was all on the outside. You could see it with your eyes, but God couldn't see it within his heart. It wasn't there. It didn't exist. He was proud. He thought he had no sin. He felt as though he needed no forgiveness. He felt that he had it all together. In fact, he felt that he knew better than Jesus. And then it was selfish. He didn't want her to find forgiveness. He didn't even want her to touch Jesus or to be in his house. We need to forsake that kind of lifestyle, those kind of actions, those kind of thoughts. Forsake hypocrisy. And thirdly, very simply, follow Christ. To the Pharisee, it was religion. To the woman, it was a relationship. She came to Christ desiring to know him and to love him and to befriend him and to worship him. What's your relationship tonight to Christ? Is it, is it a true relationship where you can come into his presence and speak to him? Do you get in his word because you want to? Or is this the only night this week that you get into the, uh, the Bible uh, when you're in church? Or is it something you desire to get into and, and to have? Is prayer something you do just around the supper table? Or do you find time alone where you can get with God and just tell him how much you love him and desire to know him? See, unless someone's utterly odious, if you spend enough time with someone, you begin to receive a a bond to them, right? Now, some you say, I've been around some people, and I just don't want to ever be with them again. Now, if 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 you get around someone who's reasonable, right, who's reasonable, who's thoughtful, who's kind, and you spend enough time with them, maybe you have a coworker like that, or a teacher like that, or just a friend like that, See, a few years ago, these two guys, they didn't even know each other, right? And now you can't ever find them apart. They might as well be, you know, conjoined at the hip. They're always together. Is it because everything that one likes to do, the other likes to do? No. Is it because they're both really smart? Maybe because they're neither one very smart. No, it's because they started spending time together, and the more time they spent together, the more friendly they got, and the, the better friends they became, the more time they wanted to spend together. It just kind of was, was this constant flow, right? You, we all have people like that. You spend enough time with Christ, the best friend that you'll ever have, the one who loves you, the one who forgives you, the one who accepts you. See, this woman had no acceptance from anyone else, but Christ accepted her. Christ loved her. Christ received her, Christ forgave her. You'll never have a better friend than in Christ. You get close to him, and that passion, that love will begin to, you'll see the flames come back. And as the love begins to 
fill your heart, the actions become very easy. It's not hard to give whenever you have a love for God. It's not hard to worship when you have a love for God. It's not hard to serve when you have a love for God. If the things of God are difficult for you, you need to look within your heart. And if you can fix that, I believe you can fix all the other issues that you struggle with. Motivated by love. May that be our desire as we approach a new year. Couldn't get any worse than 2020, right? Maybe. But if there's ever a time we need to genuinely get our passion and our love for Christ where it ought to be, I'd say this is the time. And I hope you'll do that. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And we will wrap up in just a moment. But as we stand and as we pray, I'd really like to encourage you to maybe evaluate your own life and consider where is your love. If you were to put a thermometer within the passion you have for God, where would it be? Would it be cold? Would it be hot? Would it be mild? Wherever it is, I think we can all increase it. May you desire and seek that tonight. Father, thank you once again for your word. May these things we heard tonight, the, the lesson from scripture, the example from this woman, be that which encourages us. And Lord, may all of us seek to know you and love you more and more each and every day. Lord, we desire to be optimistic about the upcoming year and the upcoming years of our country and our nation and our church, but Lord, there's so much that opposes us. May we seek you in this time of need, and may our love be strengthened and established and, and growing, that the rest might fall in its place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed as the piano plays for just the next few moments, I encourage you to Find a place there at your seat, maybe here at the altar. And if nothing else, would you just pray simply and ask God to show you where your love is? Would you be at least willing to say, God, is my love what it ought to be? I'm not asking you to make a decision. I'm not asking you to commit to loving God more. But would you be at least willing? See, Simon the Pharisee wouldn't even admit that. He wouldn't even ask that question. Would you be at least willing to say, God, where is my love? Do I have any love? And I pray that beyond that question, you'd begin to make decisions that would point that love in the right direction.